The Library by Francis Rosenfeld Ninth Scene Life doesn't give you time to actually look at it except during extraordinary circumstances. It's in those gaps, those experiences that don't fit, that you see its inherent strangeness. You notice then that things are never clean-cut. The laws of physics have exceptions, moral imperatives have exceptions, even life and death have exceptions. One doesn't see that when things are normal, whatever that means, within the range of possibility, and one forgets that very unlikely outcomes are well within the range of possibility as well. We understand freedom as the ability to control our fate and we're so proud of our marketable skills, our net worth, our physical attractiveness, our fitness, in every sense of the word, and we fail to see the gigantic mechanism we are locked into, the much larger drift of social dynamics that runs our lives into which we blind ourselves to maintain our illusion of control. When all our social ties are cut, when we're thrown out of humanity and denied the facilities of civilization at first we're overwhelmed by dread. Even the most hardened misanthrope is stunned by how much his or her life depends on the well workings of society. It is a loneliness unlike any other to no longer have a purpose in the collective human effort. At first one tries to keep up with the goals and aspirations one was raised to value. Imagining those will keep him or her from devolving to an undesirable state, only to realize with the passing of time those goals were put in place in the larger context of a group and make no sense to an individual. They make no sense at all. At the same time, completely unexpected goals and aspirations emerge, which make sense only in the current context, and only to the person who originated them. In solitude there are two paths to freedom and they both involve the abolition of fear, abandoning yourself to darkness or to absolute love. What would you do if you found out, when after much soul-rending torment you finally dare take that leap into the dark abyss that at the bottom of it you find love too? There is no place in existence where love is not. If there is one absolute to the human condition, it must be that. 300 years, the thought made Gwen so anxious her mouth went dry. Forget about surviving that long. What was one to do with so much time? We are all taught unless we do something with our time. It doesn't count. That our lives are wasted. As if doing trumps all other considerations. Even contemplatives feel compelled to plan out their soul gazing. Worried that in scheduled introspection won't get credit in life school. But what if everything worthwhile is already being done by the machinery of reality itself? What if, for a human, doing is just another form of entertainment? The removal of activities must be externally imposed, by circumstances beyond our control, for us to realize most of the things we dedicate our lives to are as relevant in the larger scheme of things as those of people who died a thousand years before we were born. They thought their goals and plans were very important, too. If somebody told Gwen only a month ago her most important task would be to herd chickens every Tuesday so they don't get swept in the mudslides, she wouldn't have wasted her time listening. We never listen to the truths we don't understand and the less we know about reality, the more confident we are we have it well in hand. 
we are then shocked when so-called unforeseen circumstances arise, making a little pile of debris of our hard-earned achievements and our carefully calibrated plans. And the strangest thing is, those circumstances are never unforeseen. Reality is not that creative. We just label as such the things that happen to other people who are definitely foolish or irresponsible or deserving of them or just plain unlucky. One thing about those pesky acts of God is you never see them coming. You can't even put together the logical unfolding of events which led to them happening after the fact. You are blindsided. You never feel more powerless because in the face of such events, all your knowledge and wisdom are worthless. People go to very dark places to escape this powerlessness, with the unconscious hope that darkness will somehow restore the control they believe they had over their lives, only to find out, in dismay, that there is nothing in the darkness that isn't also in the light. They are just two states of the same reality aspect, neither more powerful nor more desirable than the other. What am I going to do here for centuries? She asked out loud in a tiny, dry voice without even realizing it. What makes you think you're going to make it that long? Number seven asked, displeased. You don't know how to do anything. Leave the girl alone. Number one intervened. No. Number five picked up the gauntlet. He's right. He turned to Gwen, who found it difficult to understand why her life was suddenly on trial. What do you know how to do that would foster your survival? That was a strange thing to ask a person who had worked hard all her life to foster said survival. All her degrees, her responsible consumption and fitting well within the bounds of society were geared to accomplish that. Nobody had ever mentioned herding chickens to her as a critical survival skill. Welch Schauspiel, aber ach, ein Schauspiel nur. Number seven declaimed proudly, how good it is to have a literary education. She doesn't understand what you said. Number four intervened. And exactly how useless is that? For years of higher learning, for years of doing nothing but this, do you understand you're trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper? He frowned, turning towards Gwen, who looked miserable. Not to mention foreign languages. Did you learn any? French. Gwen whispered almost inaudibly, terrified of being put on the spot to translate Lissid next. Number seven waved his hand at her, irritated. The very least one is responsible to learn as a human being is ensuring one's basic survival. You know, food, shelter, safety. Who in his right mind questions basic survival? Even the most backward societies have that covered. Gwen's mind revolted. But you're not in any of those either, are you? Number seven retorted. You look like a society to me, Gwen thought, albeit a very small and very strange one. We are the library, the library. They all jumped to their feet, stomping the ground and chanting in unison. No, please, she tried to interrupt them, please, not the Greek. Greek, you want Greek. Number seven thundered. She wants Greek. He turned to the others, who continued chanting seamlessly in the old language. She realized trying to stop them would be a fool's errand, and just stood there, watching them spin around, faster and faster, until they finally dropped to the ground, 
exhausted. Boo. That was intense. Number three commented, anybody care for refreshments? I'll go make us somebody. Don't skimp. Number five prompted, where on earth do they get this stuff? Gwen thought. Clearly the desert didn't yield mind-altering botanicals. She then remembered the bread that showed up in the cupboard each morning and concluded, relieved. I'm dead. T. Number one offered. No, thank you, she declined. What damage could it possibly do to you if you're already dead? He smiled ironically. What is in it, Oh, I don't know exactly. I improvised. Gwen looked at the glistening liquid, whose green color looked like the villain's potion from a cartoon. The acrid smell was not for the faint of heart. I am not drinking that, she decided. More for us. Number one withdrew his offer, distributing the liquid to the other members of the group, who were already in a wonderful mood. If there is anything worse than being impaired, it's being sober in a group where no one else is. Not only was she a reject from normal society, but she didn't seem to fit into this tiny strange one either. She questioned her decision, wondering if under the circumstances refusing to have her mind tampered with was more proof of cowardice than of virtue. Don't be an idiot. Number seven scolded her, even from his altered state. You don't do things to fit in. You do them because you want to do them. Make yourself useful and go find us some eggs. We're going to be famished when this wears out. When she got out the door, a heavenly sight welcomed her. The sun was setting, turning the sky every color of the rainbow. Divid neon colors that seemed to glow from within. The fiery light painted the desert trucks deep rose and burned sienna and light blue and turned the mic in them alive, making it sparkle like electricity dancing across the land. How on earth? She gaped, dumbfounded, at the surreal landscape, quietly wondering if she had consumed whatever substance made the library so happy without realizing it, because it didn't seem possible for reality to be this beautiful without her ever having noticed it before. In that moment, the search for higher meaning which had brought her to this place suddenly made sense. Hey, survival camp, did you get the eggs? Number seven yelled from the house, prompting her into action. She rushed around the rocks searching for nests in the dying light, forgetting about her numinous experience, drenched in stress sweat and running against time. Above her head the clouds got carried by the wind, Long pink clouds sliding over a purple, red and orange sky, subtly shifting to darker and darker shades until they faded to deep indigo. The full flower moon popped over the horizon unexpectedly. It shone bright silver light on the rocks and the creek, bright enough to illuminate every nook and cranny. So Gwen continued her egg hunt until she found all the treasure. 